You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone. I think we'll commence now. Uh, welcome to the House of Literature, uh, everyone. Really nice to see you here. My name is Andreas Delset. I'm the artistic director here at the House of Literature. And usually I stand up here giving the introduction and then I give the floor to whoever is going to speak. Uh, but tonight is kind of special in a way because, uh, because uh, of the topic that has been very close to the program at the House of Literature. Uh, and mm -hmm. so uh, my colleagues asked me if I would like to conduct the conversation mm -hmm. myself and I happily said yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you're stuck with me for mm -hmm. the rest of the hour as well. But most importantly, you're mm -hmm. stuck with tonight's guest uh, <laughs> of honor, which is Wendy Perlman. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, yes. Wendy is the Associate Professor of Comparative mm -hmm. Politics at Northwestern University and the author of three books, uh, Occupied Voices, Stories of Everyday Life from the Second Intifada, uh, Violence, Nonviolence mm -hmm. and the Palestinian mm -hmm. National Movement, and the book that we're going to talk about tonight, We Crossed the Bridge and It Trembled, Voices from Syria. Uh, so as I said, uh, Wendy, I mean, since 2013, we've mm -hmm. had a continuous focus here at the mm House -hmm. of Literature uh, on Syria, and we've hosted a large number of speakers, predominantly Syrians, mm -hmm. as well as authors and researchers, mainly from the region, uh, to provide different vantage points and backgrounds mm -hmm. to, to inform us about what's going on. Uh, from Many different fields of research and literary genres. Uh, but here we are now, like two outsiders mm -hmm. in a way, uh, non Syrians at least, mm -hmm. to talk about Syria. Uh, but me definitely more than you. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm on a, on mostly going, going to ask the questions. Mm -hmm. uh, but, um, and looking, even looking at your scientific merits, mm -hmm. I mean, I mentioned the two books that you wrote before mm -hmm. this one. You've mainly been working in other fields before this. But I, mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, like, why, I mean, your kind of journey that took you to writing this book, mm -hmm. and just to tell a bit about yourself, yeah. Great, thanks. Um, it's interesting, because I don't necessarily see myself as working in such a different field, since my field has been sort of solidly studies of the Middle East and studies of Middle East politics. Mm -hmm. um, so I began my study of, of the Middle East or um, in the Arab world and the Arabic language during a university uh, semester abroad in Morocco in the mid-1990s, sort of began studying Arabic there, lived with a Moroccan family, and basically got hooked um, and went on to do uh, uh, my, my master's and then my PhD in political science with a focus on the Middle East, and then gradually moved eastward um, and wound up in Palestine, where I also studied for a semester um, and sort of sunk into the, the Palestine story and ended up writing two books on Palestine. One was a book of interviews, and that began something of my relationship with interviews views as a way of understanding everyday lives of peoples in the Middle East, and especially um, how people deal with politics and how politics affects lives and shapes lives and um, how uh, lives shape politics. So my first book of interviews on Palestine was about that. Um, my second book was based on my dissertation on Palestinian politics, so my PhD, that took a bit more of a scientific research and looking at uh, also struggles of, of mm -hmm. protest and protest tactics and trying to understand protest movements. So um, 
that was really my focus until 2011. And I submitted the manuscript for that second book in 2011, just as Egypt was um, uh, in its its heyday of so it, it's sort of mid January uh, 2011. Um, so after over 10 years of focusing on Palestinian politics, I was ready for something that was intellectually new, but still was an extension of everything I had done to that date. It was still focusing on Middle East politics. It was still struggling on the poli- uh, the struggles of people in the Arab world for freedom, for dignity, for voice, and it was a focus on protest and how people come to mobilize in protest and how they muster the courage to protest how they organize themselves, how they struggle against uh, often more powerful, resourced um, uh, foes. And it was with that angle that I came to look at the Arab Spring, and within the Arab Spring, many eyes turned towards Syria early on. If we remember at that time early on, many people were saying, Syria is a kingdom of silence. There might be protest in Tunisia, and then Egypt, Yemen, Bahrain, but Syrians have been too intimidated by a history of state violence. Um, The regime in Syria is too strong. The army is infused with the regime. That there might be protests everywhere else, but Syrians are not going to rise up. So when Syrians did and defied all that and also took to the streets as a uh, intellectually, someone who had studied politics and protest, I wanted to know how and why and what this was doing to people and how it was transforming their lives. Uh, And personally, I was also drawn by the sheer courage that it took for people to do that. And that was what drew me to want to study Syria. And in 2012, I made my first trip to gather interviews, gathering Syrian stories, and um, continued on until as recently as about a month ago, uh, doing these long, open-ended interviews with Syrians about their lives. And one product of those uh, long testimonials that I've gathered over the years in many different countries now in different continents, talking to hundreds of Syrians, uh, is this book. Hmm. So that means, I mean, this this book, which is really, it's not like, it doesn't come across at least when you pick <laughs> it up in a bookshop as a research yeah. project in that sense. It's a very readable, accessible book. <laughs> uh, but it's still a part of your, it's, it's a product of your research, as you say. But yeah, I, yeah. But yeah. I thought we'd, mm-hmm. we'd start with, uh, or we could, I mean, uh, we should, uh, the book is really not your voice. And mm-hmm. I thought we should start with like hearing a bit from the book. Can you read a bit? For yeah, us? no, I would love to. And first, just a, as a bit of a context for that, um, it's the book is a uh, tries to chronicle the Syrian uprising um, through exclusively through sort of a curation of excerpts of the interviews that I carried out and conducted with many, many hundreds of different Syrians in, in different countries. So there's an introduction to the book, which is in my voice, which provides some basic sort of historical context and so forth. Um, and the rest of the book is a, a series of, of, of um, excerpts. It goes name, story, name, story. Some of the stories are as short as a sentence. Some are as long as several pages that tries to move through time from before 2011 through the start of the uprising, its spread, its escalation, its militarization, experiences of war, all exclusively through this sort of mosaic of, of stories. So what I'd like to share now is um, one of my favorite stories. They're all my favorites, I guess. Um, but this one is especially close to my, my heart. And it's a story that appears... Um, at the end of a chapter called Militarization, um, as things begin to get increasingly violent in Syria. Um, And it's the story of a woman named Kinda. And here's uh, Kinda's words, and I'll abbreviate a bit for the sake of time. And Kinda said, by 2012, the Free Syrian Army, the Nusra Front, and other groups emerged. There were ugly incidents. A ceasefire was declared. 
but no one was respecting it, of course. My sister and I met with a few friends to figure out what we could do. We came up with the most wonderful idea. Four of us would wear bridal dresses. It's a beautiful sight, a white dress and a veil. Our message was to both sides, and the killing, enough. We started making the dresses. We got fabric and a sewing machine and asked a seamstress for help. I told myself that if I died wearing that white dress in protest, I would die on Syrian land with pride. The rest of the world would know that we are not terrorists. The preparations took about 25 days. We had a party the day before we went out. We decorated with jasmine flowers, as people do for weddings in Damascus. We prepared signs. One read, I'm 100% Syrian. Another read, Syria is for all of us. The third sign read, civil society calls to end all military operations on Syrian land. The next day, we went down to Midhat Basha market. We had to pass through checkpoints to get there, so we wore black abayas over the wedding dresses. Friends met us in the market and dispersed into the crowd. Then one of the girls counted. One, two, three, and we took off our black abayas. The white dresses appeared, and we put on the veils. We raised the signs and stood there for about seven minutes. People were shocked. We were four brides in the middle of the market, and we brought it to a standstill. It was a wonderful scene, by far the most beautiful day of my life. Then we started walking. Store owners left their stores and came to watch us. Everyone was silent. I wanted to move them. So I said, why aren't you ululating for Syria's brides? I ululated and the crowd went crazy. I remember there was an elderly man who began to cry. People were saying, God bless you. You are the heroes of Syria. A security force member came, a gun in his hand. He told me, take that sign down and don't cause any problems. I raised my sign even higher. We became more determined. You felt like you were facing an executioner. It's either you or him. The whole protest lasted about half an hour before a full security detail arrived on the scene and detained us. They threatened us and cursed our mothers and brothers. They kept demanding, who are you working for? Who's behind you? And then they took us to the branch office. It was terrifying psychological torture. They had us wait in the corridor. You see blood stains on the wall and ask yourself, whose blood is that? You see older men barefoot and kneeling on the floor. You wonder how long they've been like that. You see young men with their heads covered. They beat them as they pleased. We saw the guys cuffed and hanging from rods, metal digging into their flesh. After a while, they took us away for interrogation and then took us down to the cell. Every day, we'd hear the shots of field executions. We got sick and got lice. In the cell, there was one person with epilepsy, three people with asthma, one person with ovarian cancer. 
We were a tiny room with 25 diseases. For 15 days, my sister was on the verge of death. I started beating down the door. I screamed at the guard, I don't need my sister. She will die for the sake of Syria, but you will be held accountable. They were afraid because we're from a religious minority. The next day, the doctor came. We stayed in prison for two months, and then we were released on a prisoner's exchange. After I got out, I went back to Midhat Basha Market, and I asked the shop owners about the bride's incident. One said, Oh, yes, I remember them. They arrested them. I told him that I was one of the brides. He hugged me and started crying. He said, do you know what happened the next day here? He told me that there was an old man who used to sell children's toys displayed on a table. The day after our protest, he cleared everything off his table and put up only four dolls dressed as brides. Just four brides. Thank you. Uh, Thanks, Kinda. Yeah. Yeah. Would you like to say something about why you chose exactly that, that story? That piece. Well, it's, I think it's just b beautiful. I mean, I still have her voice in my head when she narrated. I met her in, in Turkey in 2013. Um, and she herself was a great storyteller. All of that is, you know, is, is her detail of making this come alive. So I think it captures um, not just an amazing story, but also the beauty in the way that people often told that, not just what they were expressing, which was often remarkable, usually remarkable, but a way of expressing it that was also as remarkable as the content itself. Um, as far as the content of the story, I mean, it just covers, I think, so many themes. Um, when she said, it was the most beautiful day of my life, that that is a theme that runs throughout the interviews that I have done, that I continue to do, that, that come through in the book, of what protest meant to those who participated in it. Again and again, people would say variations on, my first protest was like the best day of my life. The first time I heard my voice, the first time I felt free, the first time I felt like a human being, the first time I felt like a citizen, again and again. So that comes through, the joy of what it means to find voice. Um, also, the sheer cruelty of, of the violence, and especially the violence there used by, by the the regime, the violence symbolized by prisons and the violence that, that occurs in prisons, the torture, the disappearance, the, the, um, the disease and so forth, um, and, uh, and the, sheer, the sheer emotion. I mean, you can imagine what, what the, the shop owners who were themselves um, so in awe of these women and cheering them, thinking they're heroes, but at the same time so afraid themselves to speak up that they're just watching in silence. So it captures all this, these extremes of emotions of the joy and the fear and the pain and the loss. Um, uh, there's still many more emotions than that, but it gives you some microcosm of, of all that's at stake in Syria. Hmm. Uh, I, mean, I mean, even the... You talked about the structure of the book as well, yeah. the way you composed it, and you mentioned that you've done so many, yeah. I mean, hundreds, more than 300 yeah. interviews, right? Uh, mm -hmm. um, and the book is then composed into a, 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 a complete narrative, in a way, yeah. that goes from 
and the chapter titles are Authoritarianism, Hope Disappointed, Revolution, Crackdown, Militarization, Living War, Flight and Reflections. Yeah. So it's almost like a, I mean it's a kind of a poetic summary in itself <laughs> of the of the of the tragedy. Um uh, I wanted to ask you about because you, you mm -hmm. on one side there's these single stories and then there's mm -hmm. the horrific numbers. Yeah. And you know the bad numbers better than mm -hmm. me, but it's more than a half a million people killed now in this war, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And there's probably at least as many injured, if not more. Mm -hmm. And how many refugees now? Probably. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, the, the numbers that people usually say is that you know, over half Syria's population of 22 million has been forced from their homes, have become displaced. Estimates are something around 6.8 million are internally displaced. So people have been forced to flood but are still inside Syria. Some in internally in displaced people's camps and others renting apartments or living wherever they can. Um, something like 5.6 million Syrians are refugees in the countries on Syria's border. Um, at least 3.5 million in Turkey. These are registered with the United Nations with the UNHCR, um, something like a million in, in Lebanon, 600,000 in Jordan, also numbers in, in Iraq and in Egypt, and also throughout North Africa too, mm. um, in smaller numbers. Something like a million Syrians are in Europe having either received asylum or seeking asylum. About 100,000 have been resettled elsewhere. Uh, so it's over, over half the population, over uh, something like 13 million now scattered in different places, including those who are internally displaced. Mm. So there, yeah, it's it's horrific. Plus, those who have been killed, those who have been injured, and also those who are missing. And even now, when I continue to do interviews, um, the the plight of the detainees, of people who've been arrested and not heard from again, the families who wait, not knowing if they are alive or if they're dead, um, this is an enormous issue that I don't think gets enough mm. attention. Um, so both those who who have been arrested and the families and loved ones who wait for them. Mm. There was, I mean, there was an incident earlier this summer, just mm -hmm. yes. an example of that, with the li these lists being Absolutely. released. Uh, can you explain what that that was? Yeah. So uh, again, there are people who who've had family members who've been who've disappeared, and they now maybe four, five, six, seven years don't have any information. And I remember early on when I began this project, meeting women who um, didn't know if they were widows or not, wondering at what point can I move on with life? My husband's disappeared. I don't know if he's alive or dead. What does that mean for me? And of course, the mothers and the brothers and the children also. Um, uh, um, you know, people would frequently say, even at that time, um, you know, you just pray that you'll be killed rather than arrested, which is a slow, much more painful death in prison. Um, so there's been this, this lack of information. And, and this summer, um, the regime released a list with uh, a list of, of people who had been detained saying that they had died, usually saying they died of a heart attack, although these are people who are often, you know, 19, 20 years old and the best of health at the time they were arrested. So it's assumed to mean they were died under mm -hmm. torture and sometimes were killed years and years earlier. So you had families receiving this information discovering that their loved ones had been killed actually years ago and they'd been waiting and waiting with that sense of hope and longing living by their phone for years and they just weren't giving that information so it's a tremendously powerful cruel sort of card that the government can play and so i was you know the summer doing interviews in, in germany turkey and, and lebanon and could see visually, I mean, it was at the time when these lists were being released and then the rumors were passing on about, will other lists come and so forth. And I remember... Because they're incomplete, right? I mean, absolutely. They're, and, they're, and there's no possible way of, of verifying 
Absolutely. Whether it's correct information. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, so you have people who sometimes maybe they want to see a body to have the sense of closure of being able to bury that, that there's still lots of unknowns and the lists have in no way been complete. It was just the first segment of a list. So it even, you know, when I was doing interviews and people saying, oh, you should go and go and tall, call this woman, you should really do an interview, but don't do it now because her son was arrested and she is in a state of, of almost hysteria, waiting by the phone, wondering at any moment, will a new list come or not? Um, and you can only imagine how many hundreds of thousands of people are, are living in that kind of an emotional limbo until now. Mm. You've, you've, I mean, there's these incredible numbers. And, yeah. and then there's the stories in your book. Yeah. Uh, can you I mean, why did you choose to to focus on stories as a method mm -hmm. and as an approach to this instead of the figures? Yeah, um, yeah th because the numbers are out there and the numbers are hard to relate to. I think that they're hard to internalize, they're hard to fathom. What does 500,000 dead mean? What does... What does 13 million displaced mean? It's hard to, uh, to see a face on a number. It's hard to, um, to, to, to connect to it. And behind each of those numbers is a story, is a human being, is a family, is, is a set of, of dreams and hopes and aspirations and pain and loss. Um, so I think it's a, it's, a, it's a human way to connect. Um, and numbers themselves don't explain the whys and the hows of the conflict. So, um, so you're absolutely right in saying that my own background is as a political science, as someone who's trained in more scientific research. Um, and I wanted to write this book uh, in a way that I hoped would um, express what the Syrian conflict is about for as large an audience as possible, to be a book that was accessible mm. for an average reader, with a mission being I wanted a book that would help explain the Syrian conflict, its background, its origins, its evolution but also a book that would make people care, mm. that, would, that would touch people's hearts in a way to see that there's a shared humanity here, there is a human catastrophe, there's so much loss, um, not just because of the numbers and the cruelty and the violence, but also because there was a, a brave struggle that people suffered for and sacrificed and risked for enormously to make a rebellion, a revolution, and, and that has also been brutalized. And I wanted to honor and respect that political struggle as well as the, the lives and the violence that people mm -hmm. have suffered. And I thought that stories was a way of doing it. One, because it's a very human way um, to connect to people as human beings. There's all of these details of everyday life that come through in the stories um, that maybe each of us can relate to in different ways when people talk about getting their kids ready for school or pulling a blanket up over them when it's cold. These human details that Syrians and refugees experience as all people do. Mm. Um, and, but beyond the stories, um, as I went along doing the project, it became very important to me to want to express those stories in Syrians' own words. And I feel very fortunate in that sense that most of the interviews I've done have been audio recorded. So there's the expression there and all of the details, as I was saying with, mm. with the excerpt I read, not just what is said, but how it's said, um, that I didn't need to rephrase things for myself because mm. um, people did it in ways that were a million times better than I ever could. I just mm. needed to 
record it, capture it, document it, and then package it in a way that I thought would be accessible um, for readers. Mm. Of course, it ends up being a large role for myself too, because we're you know things don't get from an audio recording to a book mm. on their own. Um, the the uh, the interviews I did were hundreds and hundreds of thousands of words. In the end, this book is something like fifty thousand words. So mm. there was a lot of cutting to make it manageable in choosing and curating to put it together in a in a narrative form, um, in a way that I hoped one story would complement the other and connect with the other to tell uh, a collective mosaic mm. kind of a story. Um, but that was some of the, of, of the purpose of, of, mm. of, the, of the narratives. And I guess maybe one more detail there is along the way, this is sort of what occurred to me of why I didn't feel like my voice needed to be in there interpreting the stories, analyzing the stories, explaining the stories to a reader because the Syrians were doing that for themselves. They weren't just telling what happened. They were providing their own analysis of the entire mm -hmm. conflict, of authoritarianism and how it survives, of protest and how it's organized, of geopolitics, of militarization, of how people cope with war, of the nature of the refugee crisis. So I think the voices provide um, this human detail, an emotional detail, but they also provide an awful lot of analysis and explanation um, that we can hear it from the voices mm. of those who've lived these events and not assume that only you know, outsiders have expertise. And you even, you even get the sense of why it's so incredibly important in the Syri context of Syria to for people to speak, finally, after so many decades of not speaking. You call it the kingdom of silence. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and some of the, the people you've, uh, that uh, you give voice to in the book are, I mean, they, they, they explain it so well how, how, how much an, of an effort it took for them to, to actually start speaking about it, even daring to think about the issues that, that were going on. Yeah, yeah. no, no, absolutely. But, but then you made a, you've made an, a narrative yes. out of this book. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just, I mean, to be a bit of a devil's lawyer, I mean, sure. you could have made a lot of different narratives out of this mm -hmm. conflict. And I truly, it's something that really characterized at least the way we, we um, talk about the war in Norway mm -hmm. uh, is conflicting narratives around what, what, what really happened in Syria. And what is this war about? Whose war mm. is it? Um, Who's who is the real who's the who's the enemy and who's the friend and and so on. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of struggle over what's truth. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, obviously, the first casualty of war is truth, right. and that's how it is. But so you constructed a, a specific narrative, yeah. and I know that there's a lot of people who will contest that narrative. Mm -hmm. uh, what what was your approach? Can you say yeah. something about that? Yeah. So when I, I began this, this, this project, especially interested in dynamics of protest, as I said, it was sort of on the backdrop of the Arab Spring, and I'd studied protest in the, in the Palestinian context, and was really interested to know how Syrians, um, as I said before, sort of mustered the courage to go out and protest. There was this expression that was used in Syria, but throughout the Arab world in 2011, of the barrier of fear broke. And I wanted to understand what was the barrier of fear? What did it feel like? How did it break? How did people gain the courage to go out and protest. So that's how I began with the first, began almost thinking of it as more academic project. And then that question, asking people, what does this expression mean to you? If it happened in your own life, how did it happen? 
opened the door to these long stories about both what life was like in Syria before 2011, how the uprising got going, and then it just led from there to everything that had happened since. So because I began with a special interest in protest, I started talking to people who had protested or had experienced protest or in some way were connected. And with that, then, my sort of neat research networks got stronger and stronger with people who in some way identified with protest, participated in, support it in some way. So over time, the overwhelming majority of people I've spoken to have identified as being in some way critical of the regime. But that's really the majority of refugees, too. Most refugees have fled because they were either participating in some way or were in communities that largely rose up and then faced regime reprisals and had to flee, especially in the beginning years. Now many people have fled for all sorts of reasons. The economy's tanked, not wanting to serve in the army and so mm -hmm. forth. But especially in those early years where I did the bulk of interviews, um, it was a, 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 you know, the bulk of people were, were critical of the regime. And for the, the stories I collected, again and again, there were these themes. People's stories went in this arc that repeated again and again of sort of describing pre-2011 pre Syria of, of fear, intimidation, corruption, repression, not being able to speak. And feeling basically, like as one person put it, dreaming is not allowed. You just couldn't even imagine big thoughts. Your life was had a ceiling of what, um, of what connections or lack of connections or security force officers' arbitrary abuses of power would allow. And then the feeling of liberation of what it meant to participate in protest. And then the experience of, in some ways, this protest movement losing control, fragmentation, repression of, of the army, extreme violence, the hor horrors of living under bombardment and living war as a civilian, and ultimately the pain of having to flee as a refugee. That basic arc, although it's all the variations on the experiences, that stage of life repeated so many times in so many ways that when I tried to line people's stories up which I tried in one way. So this is the end of this product of this book is the, is the end of trial and error of many different forms of lining up people's stories. My one, at one point was doing sort of um, just narratives, not in this collective narrative way, but individual voices, name a person's whole story, another person's whole story, another person's story. They so repeated this basic trajectory mm. that it didn't work as a, from the point of view of a book. It was that person's from, from authoritarianism through protest and war and, again and again and again. Of course, everyone's experience is different, but the trajectory, the basic arc of the experience was so shared. I discovered in just putting these together that I said, you know, these individual narratives really coalesce into a collective narrative. How can I best express that by cutting these up to, collect, to create that narrative? So, of course, there's a, the part of that narrative is, is me, too. It's what I saw there, but I saw it in looking at the material and seeing that that's, what, that's the arc that emerged. Mm. Of course, there are different, there are different points of view. Um, but for me, it's been tremendously gratifying when Syrians have, have read the book. Um, and for me, one of the most you know, sort of powerful voices of praise I got from this book was from a Syrian who said, there's nothing new here. There's mm -hmm. nothing new. We know all of this. This is my story. It's my parents' story. This is, you know, boring. We've all lived this. To which I said, thank God. I think, I, at least from that, that point of view, got something right. Mm. So it certainly doesn't reflect the experience of all Syrians. No book could reflect the experience of all Norwegians or all mm. Americans or so forth. But for a large part of the population, I think this book represents that experience. Mm. And this is a population, part of the population that I think meets with too few chances to represent itself 
mm. to say what this whole thing means for them. Again, it's not everyone, but it's a, it's a, part, it's a part of the story, and I think that no book can really do mm. more than that. I've tried to be loyal to the, the people who, who I've mm. met. But then there's, I mean, mm-hmm. then there's people coming, mm-hmm. someone like, I mean, I read an interview with uh, Adonis, for instance, mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. poet that yeah. is highly regarded uh, uh, literally, uh, mm-hmm. and saying that it's not true that these were protests of the people in the first place. Mm-hmm. They, they came out of the mosques, and it's uh-huh. a religious, you know? It's really hard to know what you can, should make of that, because mm-hmm. as looking at it from here... Yeah, yeah, no, I can, um, absolutely, and I can say that when you talk to, that's that's one point of view, and if you talk to as many people as you can, you will hear um, stories that contest each of those points, so I can even break down that, that, that mm-hmm. you know, step by step. One is, people came out of the mosques, there are even stories here, and I've heard multiple others that didn't, I didn't, wasn't able to put into the, the book, because each one that made it into the book also represents, I think, something larger. People went out of the mosques, yes, because it was basically prohibited for more than five people to gather, and where else could people gather without a security force officer coming is in the mosques. It's the one place where people could go. So even, I mean, there are, there's uh, the story of, um, of in Dara on March, to, March uh, 18th, 2011, which was the first sort of mass, spontaneous, more street protest that ended in, in killings and had the first martyrs of, of, of the uprising. I talked to many, many people from, from that town in southern Syria where they said they tried to have a protest on March 15th where there had been a call on Facebook for protests and there had been a call to have a protest outside the courthouse in the major square. Where these uh, boys had been imprisoned because they had allegedly drawn the graffiti. Exactly, exactly. the Mm -hmm. same town. They Mm -hmm. had tried to have a protest in the main square outside the courthouse, a very secular, national, not religious place, and had coordinated to have a protest. And when people came by themselves separately, because it seemed too dangerous for people to come together, people got individually to the courthouse and found that it was already filled with security officers. There had been informants somehow. The security forces found out there was going to be a protest. People said they just walked right by the square and didn't even stop. Mm -hmm. That protest didn't happen. Three days later, there was one in the mosque. People realized, and it was interesting, that some of the people who were involved in that, organizing that first protest were leftists in the Communist Party. In fact, to one person who talked about that, and he said, I was part of the group that said we should have the, the protest at the mosque, but I couldn't go because everybody in town would know, you don't pray. And if you showed up there, they'd be like, what is he doing? doing here something's up mm. so um so there was the thing in the mosque that you would have one person stand up get the critical mass of enough people together to walk out the door and then hope other people would join by seeing on the streets or coming down from their houses and balconies to get a critical mass and that's exactly what happened and of course the, the both the book and many more stories filled with the fact that that atheists came to the mosque and um, and Christians came to the mosque. There's a story of a, we hear even of a man, so a, 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 a man who went to the mosque to, press, to participate in the protest, and as he bent down to pray, the the cross on his necklace came off, and everyone knew this guy's come to the come here because he wants to join the protest like everybody else. There are other stories. I remember people talking about. Um, going to the mosques where things would start up on Fridays. It's like, you know, there were, there were guys that were covered with tattoos and they were wearing shorts and it's clear they didn't even know how to pray the, the first time they'd ever shown up there. But again, that's, that was the, the place where protests began. So there are all sorts of reasons that have nothing to do with religion. As far as the idea that they, these weren't really legitimate protests, that people, that people weren't, that there weren't, uh, this wasn't a popularly motivated, uh, this, 
the the peop- the stories and the videos and the pictures uh, testify that that's that's just not true. Mm. That's just not true. Millions of people risked their lives and went out into the streets. Mm. Mm. Does that mean that among? I mean, obviously, you the, you you speak to refugees and and. And mm-hmm. you kind of uh, reach out, you, right. you're getting in contact with them through a, a network that's yeah. kind of extending and so on. But, uh, and you say that they kind of mm-hmm. agree on this, mm-hmm. on this narrative. But are there stuff, is there stuff yes. that's like disputed, that's discussed within, mm-hmm. within the, the, the communities? Yeah, no, absolutely. And one is, is that it's been important for me to try to get these multiple entry ways. So it's not just sort of one snowball, but it's infinite snowballs of basically just asking everybody you know can you introduce me can you do introduce can you talk to me you know both both syrians and non-syrians always trying to to sort of have as many different entryways as possible to have as much diversity mm-hmm. um but for sure there's debate so i said that, that that basic arc which for me is the spine of the book that was shared but within that then there's a tremendous amount of diversity. Mm-hmm. So one enormous debate, especially I think in the early days, was the question of militarization. Should the upright, should the opposition have taken up arms or not? And there were absolutely views and there views of, of fighters uh, who, whose stories appear here who said that it was both necessary and inevitable and we were fa- being faced with weapons and we had to take weapons on our own. And, and then you had others who said even... Even if we were faced by the most terrible po- kinds of violence, whether on ethical grounds or on st- sheerly strategic grounds, the opposition should not have become armed. Mm-hmm. So that's a major, a major debate. Mm-hmm. Um, there are uh, all sorts of debates about after things became increasingly violent, um, the role of foreign and outside money and money in general that came into the uprising and the armed rebellion in different ways in the form of foreign patrons with different goals and different agendas. I remember in my round of interviews in 2013, for the first time I heard this term, political money. And I was like, what are people talking about? And then realize it's this sense of, of all the kind of corrupting influences, even within the opposition. Um, that, that is a source of a lot of internal debate among the opposition. There's debate about the leadership of the opposition and from the sort of the grassroots views of Syrians mm. inside and the officially recognized political exile leadership mm. and the disconnects there and the wrongs done and the strategically uh, you know, questionable decisions and so mm. forth. So I think there's both a diversity of, 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 of views and there's a lot of internal, even with within the, the, the realm of those who um, identify as critical of the Assad regime, um, a lot of debate and a lot of self-criticism too. Mm. And I think another thing besides the idea of just are there multiple narratives is that these narratives also change over time. This is a dynamic, evolving situation. So even someone who maybe had one point of view in 2011 or 2012 might now have a different point of view as time has, has gone by, and that's uh, a dynamic um, aspect as well, but people's views are always uh, evolving with life. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's so much more we should talk about or could talk about yeah. here, but I mean, there's other stuff to talk about as well. Yeah. Uh, the other, I mean, one thing is that one can read your book to learn about the war itself and the, yeah. or the the revolution and how it uh, ended up where we are today. Yeah. Um, but I think the other way, major way, you can read mm-hmm. this book is to learn about uh, refugees, mm-hmm. about yeah. what they bring with them. Yes. And this is something that this book... Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a kind of a leading question in a way. <laughs> but I would like to, to, to hear your thoughts on that because um, 
I mean, you don't have to re- you don't have to engage a lot with with uh, the kind of literature that you're writing or the way we've done here through the other guests that we've had mm-hmm. to understand that the immensity of what people bring with them uh, and, uh, and and that this is something we really don't t- spend enough time thinking about. Yeah. So maybe we can do that together. Would you really share your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I mean, that's the, um, I think the biggest sort of, well, there are many caveats of who I was able to talk to and who I was not and the limits of this book and, and the limits of the, the viewpoints it raises. And the major one is I only interviewed Syrians who'd left the country. I just judged it was too dangerous, or at least I wasn't, you know, all this praise of people's courage, I didn't have it all the same courage to do this do this type of work or even attempt it inside Syria. So I only spoke to Syrians who'd fled the country. Um, so uh, that means that there aren't really, there aren't represented the voices of those who stayed. Mm. Um, although some people I talked to were coming and going. You know, even just uh, a month ago in, in, in Lebanon, did an interview with somebody who was going home to Damascus that day, and just was there on a visit. So there's a bit of, of, of that. Um, but ultimately, these are, the, these are the voices of refugees. Mm. When I began this project, I didn't really see them as the voices of refugees, because the people themselves thought that they were going to go home at any moment. They didn't necessarily see themselves as refugees. They saw themselves as people who'd walked a few kilometers and crossed the border and were really going to go home at any point. Um, and with time, that refugee dimension of their own lives has become more and more salient as many um, have now moved from those border countries to Europe or in general um, uh, don't expect to go home anytime soon. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, yeah, these are the stories of, of, of refugees. In some ways, maybe even before they saw themselves as refugees, and I think it does show what they what they bring with them that their lives don't begin the second they get on a boat or get off the boat or step foot in Europe. Um, they have families and they have lives and they have dreams and they have stories. And um, um, one thing that I've loved about doing this is that I don't have any set questions. I don't have a questionnaire or even a list of questions. Mm-hmm. When I talk to people, I just say. So what has your life been like? What has this conflict been like for you? Um, before I began with sort of the question of what does the barrier of fear mean to you mm. with time has gone by, just tell me about, about your mm. life. And when you open it up in that way, people say all sorts of things. So for all of us who have contact with refugees in one way or another, to learn about who they are, you don't have to frame it in a refugee way. What is it like to be a refugee? <laughs> How do you feel about a refugee? What do you, you know, who are you as a person and you'll hear a whole lot of stuff that doesn't necessarily have to do with being a refugee per se. Um, one of the, I remember one of the people I interviewed saying something like, you know, being a, ref, a refugee is not a type of person. It's a situation. It's a set of circumstances that anybody could find him or herself in if there happened to be war in your country and you're forced to flee. So there are good people and bad people and ambitious people and lazy people and talented and, less and so forth. There's the full range of society. So it's hard to characterize who's a refugee because mm. it's just a slice of, of society, but it's a circumstance, mm. and it's filled with individuals who find themselves in those circumstances for reasons outside their control. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of diversity. Yeah. Uh, there's, but there's also like the image of the good refugee, in a sense. I mean, right. not to, not to mm-hmm. speak badly of anyone's case, yes. but uh, you often hear these interviews with re- refugees and it's like, but you learned Norwegian, so you're fine. Right. And I'm always thinking, like, how can you say that someone is fine in that context, you know? Right. right. I mean, it's fantastic that you learned Norwegian. It's fantastic that, I mean, but, yeah. but how can you say that someone is fine? 
So, I mean, uh, obviously there's diversity, yeah. but in the same way as there's a kind of a, a, a narrative that emerging right. about the stories of the war. Yeah. Um, would you say there's some kind of like a general characteristic of what people need, what people are uh-huh. lacking, uh, mm-hmm. what we're able to provide mm-hmm. and what we're not able to provide? Yeah, I mean, it's a terrific question. So one aspect, I think an important aspect of the diversity is there's um, very big differences depending on where people have have wound up. The needs of a a Syrian refugee in Lebanon is quite different than one in in, in Norway. And and the situation in the the countries on on Syria's borders is really tremendously dire, where people don't have uh, any sort of permanent recognized refugee status or legal asylum. Most are living as guests in Turkey, Lebanon, or, or Jordan. There's a fear they might be sent back whenever there's a decision by the governments that, you know, now it's ready, Syria's war is over, it's now safe, you'll be sent back, and that sort of thing. Um, Most people are working in the informal economy if they're working at all, so they're often working in unsafe, um, unhealthy, exploitative situations for very low wages. There are hundreds of thousands of kids who are not going to school, often because they have to work and their families are dependent upon their labor. Mm. Um, and, of course, the situation of dignified housing and so forth. So just, again, a month ago I was in, in Lebanon where there aren't even officially recognized refugee camps. There are tents on the side of the road, um, 30, 40 uh, families. And it's, so the situation there is, is tremendously dire, and there's, and there's great need, especially in those, in those border countries where these countries themselves are, are sort of overwhelmed by the sheer numbers. But this is the yeah. general discourse here is that we should help them where they are, uh-huh. which means there. Right. Are we doing um, that? Uh, not enough. No? <laughs> and not just the way. I mean, the entire the entire world. Absolutely, the situation there is 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 dire. And um, if there is there is uh, seems to be this sort of division of labor with the global north and global south, where our countries say we don't want refugees to come in, so keep them there. It's if more cost efficient also to help them there. I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, but may, perhaps, yeah. perhaps, but um, but th- but their but their rights and protection and needs have to be met. There, and there's also an issue of um, the legal structures and political systems in place are there to offer um, that legal that legal protection. There's there's issues of of money and budgets to be able to provide needs so people have dignified lives, and especially for kids to be able to go to schools and have futures. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are also le- legal questions of mm-hmm. uh, will their rights a place where their their their, their rights and their re- basic residences mm. um, and their futures can be provided so people can have some aspect of legal and thus emotional um, stability. Um, but but even the, re- the refugees here, and, and another uh, point, of course, is that most Syrian refugee families are completely split and scattered, so that many who are in Europe have families in other family members in other European countries are still inside Syria or still mm. on Syria's borders, that families are scattered. So for, for, for refugees who have made it to Europe, this issue of family reunification is tremendously important, that it is difficult to imagine someone could get on with his life and learn the language and find work and so forth mm. when a spouse and kids or a sick mother or somewhere is, is, is elsewhere. Mm. And I know it's a difficult political issue and legal issue, but family reunification is... Is, is enormous. I can't tell you how many people I've you know, are in, in a tremendous limbo mm. um, because they spend uh, you know, so much energy and is absorbed with, with their families who are not with them and they're just waiting to be reunited. Um, yeah. yeah, that's just one of many issues yeah, of, of, of uh, you know, economic, uh, political, um, personal, social, mm. uh, psychological. Yeah. 
And some of these things are, I mean, pertinent to any kind of refugee from a right. war situation, I would assume. But but there's also some like some like Syrian particularities uh-huh. to the. I was thinking of someone like um, mm. there's uh, one uh, Abdul Rahman yeah. from Hama in your book, yeah, uh, who's in now in Denmark. Yes, uh, and he talks about how how when he kind of had settled mm-hmm. in somehow in, yeah. in Denmark and it goes pretty well for him. Yeah. They start organizing. He learned Danish. Yeah. Learn Danish. <laughs> yeah. Uh, bring, a, yeah. bring a certificate of uh, education. <laughs> what yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he, they organize protests against the regime in Denmark. Yeah. And uh, he talks about the reluctance of old people yeah. to come out and take part in that. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can explain that. And also... I, uh, maybe I, I think it's related. There, I can't uh-huh. remember who it is, but it, there's another person in the book mm-hmm. talking about how it takes a year at least uh-huh. before you can start to kind of speak, formulate your. <laughs> right. You, you, you yeah. remember which one? Yeah. 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 Can yeah. you explain how that? Why it's like that? Right. Yeah. Right. So that so the the latter excerpt that you're referring to is is a man named Hossam who actually left Syria in the 1980s with his family, and he. So he grew up most of his, you know, um, from childhood onward um, outside the country. And he was talking then about Syrians who were also leaving outside the country, um, traveling perhaps in the 80s or the 90s or the 2000s, all before the revolution. And he said something like, you know, when you meet a Syrian coming out of the country for the first time, the person's like, oh, everything's great, and Syria's great, and the economy's doing great. And he said, it'll take him like six months up to a year to become a normal human being and talk. And say what he thinks. And he says, even after all that time, you feel someone feels like someone is still recording. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that that the sense of of this kind of disposition to silence. This is all sort of pre two thousand eleven. Could be so internalized. You know, people say the walls have ears, and when you grow up, you're raised on the idea: don't talk, you don't know who to spy, you don't know who's an informative informant, you don't know who will write a report on you. It's better just don't talk about politics. That doesn't get shed. So easily, so mm. I think they're both pointing. So Abdul Rahman said the same thing when he um, got to 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 Copenhagen, and there had been other Syrians who'd migrated before 2011 and hadn't experienced the uprising, which was a, trying to be a complete negation of all of that. Mm. He went from the walls have ears to breaking the barrier of fear. That there are other people who hadn't experienced that, and they were too afraid to have even in 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 in, in Copenhagen to have a demonstration. Because they were just, you don't know who's there and who might be spying on you and, and I still have family inside Syria and so forth. So, so there's not just, I think, that this is this internalized fear, which I think is, is, is true for those who didn't in some way take that glass and shatter it in 2011. And I think that's a big part of what the revolution was, was all about. Um, but, but there are also real security fears. For sure. I mean, I did, I did interviews in, in coffee shops in, in Berlin in, in July and August in which people said, you don't know who might be spying here. And there are probably, I mean, there might be, I mean, it's, 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 it's very likely that who knows that there are still agents in, you've gotten in, in Europe. So, so it's not just, I think, an internalized psychological fear, but these security issues are real. And especially for people who have close family or family at all inside Syria, um, there is, there is still a, a threat. So there's a threat, but there's also a socialization, I think, that happened. And I, th- get, I think that, again, is a way of, I think, multiplies the intensity with which we have to honor what the, what the revolution achieved mm. and people being able to, to over, overcome that. Mm. Um, I always say it's not that fear disappeared or went away. It's that people worked up the ability to, 
go out and talk anyway. We have to jump jump onward, but there's uh, more stuff to cover. Yeah, uh, I wanted to talk a bit also about uh, the Palestinians. Sure. Because you worked uh, a lot with Palestinia, Palestine, mm. as we talked about. Yeah. And uh -huh. uh, um, in the case of the Norwegian uh, mm -hmm. discourse, mm -hmm. uh, uh, there's a lot, there's a very strong, there's a very strong sentiment in Norway to mm -hmm. support the Palestinian cause. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would say that there's not been the same kind of a, a cause for the Syrian struggle. Yeah. Uh, how how can you explain that and why? What do you think of that? What I think about that is it breaks my heart <laughs> in 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 a short term, um, and it and it it baffles me in so many ways. And it, I think it's not just in Norway. I think this is a kind of a phenomena of in many ways what people identify as a kind of anti-imperialist left across the the globe. Um, for me, Syria and Palestine are so clearly linked as they both struggles of liberation. They're struggles for freedom and for dignity and among a population to live um, and decide their own fates and, and, and not live under the oppression of, of other powers that use violence as a way of creating intimidation and, and, um, and ultimately shrinking the horizons of what people can be and what they can imagine and um, and uh, struggles for a kind of account an accountability, a political system where people can choose their own leaders, make their own laws and decisions, um, remove those leaders when they don't do a good job. Um, that's what political liberation means. And I see Syria and Palestine as 100% in that way, um, similar struggles. Of course, different circumstances, different histories, one against a foreign occupation, once against a, an authoritarian uh, regime. Um, but but the same basic human struggle. So um, why people would not see them as being the same, in fact, see them as being tremendously different, for me is, is, um, is getting caught up in political rhetoric, political propaganda, almost ideology that becomes blinders rather than seeing the essence of these two struggles as human struggles. Um, I think that the, the Syrian regime has been quite effective um, since 2011, but for its entire history, of um, legitimizing itself by presenting itself as, some, as a government that has stood up to Israel, that has defended the rights of Palestine and Palestinians, um, that has been part of the resistance against imperialism and American power in the West and so forth. And I think that the historical record shows that to be a lot of hot air, a lot of rhetoric and propaganda, not really backed up by, by much real action. So just as I was talking earlier about that, I did lots of interviews with people from southern Syria, and they're on the border with with Israel and Palestine. And they're like, we didn't see one bullet going over the border for you know 40 years, but as soon as we went out into the streets... You know, they brought out the helicopters to, and tanks to come shoot us down. Mm -hmm. um, that, uh, so I think that this has been part of the, the rhetoric of the Assad regime. And, um, and it pains me that so many um, outside Syria and in, in the West and in Europe and the United States, North America and so forth, have in many ways um, bought this, this narrative. I, mm -hmm. I think it's just not, not true. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and it's a shame. And another interesting thing, of, of course, is to hear the voices of, of Palestinian Syrians or Syrian Palestinians, Palestinians mm -hmm. who became refugees and lived their whole lives in Syria. Mm -hmm. One interesting thing I've heard from so many um, Palestinian Syrians who, um, who also found themselves in the revolution saying, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't really appreciate my Syrianness until the uprising. 
Mm. And then I saw that these these causes were linked, and I also saw that this is um, mm. Syria's my country as well, and I want mm. its freedom as well. As much as I'm still Palestinian, I'm Syrian too, and people would say things like, yeah. the revolution taught me that. Yeah. So we have to listen to their, their yeah. voices That's a well. really interesting one from this guy Rami from Yarmouk, uh-huh. right. who explains how the Palestinians in the Yarmouk, yes. which is a kind of a refugee camp, turned yeah. into a city yes. in a way, mm-hmm. outside Damascus, and, and the way they are kind of uh, asked to choose sides by the regime in a way. Kind of mm-hmm. shows the policy of the regime in a very clear way as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Lastly, mm-hmm. uh, no, not lastly, but mm-hmm. almost lastly, we're mm-hmm. approaching the end. I want to talk a bit about literature because mm-hmm. there's a there's a book that I, I mean, the way it came about, that yeah. I wanted to ask you this is uh, there's a book, right. a, a novel mm-hmm. called The Shell in mm-hmm. English, uh, Skalle in Norwegian, mm-hmm. which will be translated into Norwegian <laughs> and published next year. And when I talked to, to some Syrians I know in Oslo about yeah. it, they said, yes, it's an, it's an important yeah. book and so on. Yeah. And I think that resonates with your research as well. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about what this b- book is and uh-huh. and how it, the role it has played? Yeah, absolutely. So I first heard about the book in, in during my first rounds of interviews in 2012 and then 2013, when again and again, I basically was saying, you know, people tell me about your life, tell me about Syria and so forth. And again and again, young Syrians would say, have you read Al-Qawqa'a? Have you read Al-Qawqa'a? If you read The Shell, they're like, you should read The Shell, basically. You don't bother, I can tell you whatever, read that book and it'll tell you everything you need to know about Syria. And um, so finally, when I started to, to read the book and I got like the, the PDF in, in Arabic and read through it, I could see what they... What the they PDF meant. that was kind of circulated, right? Yeah, because so, no one right. had the physical... Exactly. Copy of the book. And th- so I would even ask people, how, what is this book and how did you come about it? And people said, in 2011, after, the, after protests began, this is, uh, there might have been people who read it in different ways or in other ways, mm-hmm. um, but many people I talked to said it began to be circulated in a kind of a secret PDF um, on, online one from one person to another, and people got it inside Syria and read it. Um, and uh, this in the secret way, of, it was a way of, for many the way I understood it for many people, really beginning to discover what the regime prisons are all about. And the, I mean, what I've been able to... Because to, the novel is set in a ex- prison. Ex- exactly, exactly. Yeah. The story, it's the story of, of um, uh, a Syrian man who happens to be Christian, who, who is living abroad, who comes back to Syria, is arrested at the airport. He doesn't even know why. He's thrown into prison, is being accused on the accusation he's a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. He's like, I'm Christian. They're like, shut up and put him in, in prison. And he's in prison for many, many years. And it's his personal story of... Of, um, of torture, of uh, on the level both physical and psychological, and a view of what it is like inside Syrian prisons. And I, myself, in this book, have several interviews with people who've spent time in prison, and they're the same stories. You talk to anyone who spent time in prison, come out of the sheer overcrowding, of not having enough food, of the food that itself is inedible, of um, of disease, of people dying in the cell, of of situations that could easily be cured, but there's no medicine, of the sheer cruelty, the gratuitous cruelty of, of, of the system of the guards, of people having to, you know, get three seconds to run to the, the restroom and they get beaten if they don't return. And um, again, the overcrowding such that people sleep on the uh, floor with like sardines lined up or sleep in, in shifts every 12 hours. People, some, they cannot, people can't, can't, can't all sleep at the same time because there's just not enough room. All of these types of aspects. And the shell, I think, goes into quite the sort of psychological um, 
situation of this this man as well, who's alienated, not only experiences uh, the horrors in the prison, but also the alienation from other prisoners because he's not a member of their political um, trend and so forth. So he's really almost a double or triple prisoner. And um, and then we see his sort of situation when he's gets out and, and, and broken mm. in many in many ways. So it's a it's a book that that in some ways um, is just one small window into uh, the cruelty of of this regime as a system of of power. Of, of command and obedience, of, of violence and threat, of dehumanization. Um, and, uh, and as some say, that all of Syria is a prison. And this is one mm. view of a prison, and the country is a larger prison. And the same relations of power, those who have power can basically do, and do do, whatever they want. And those who are citizens are, are dispensable, mm. are, are um, in many ways powerless to... Um, to fight back until those who did fight back and have been, you know, gradually mm. beaten down by mm. so much, by so much violence. So mm. it's um, it's a tremendously, I think, important book. But it's also part of an entire genre of prison literature, and there are many other books that have been written um, by former prisoners who've mm. managed to to get out and tell their and mm. tell their stories. Mm. I forgot to mention his name and the name of the author is Mustafa Khalifa. Yeah, Khalifa. Yeah. yeah. Just a small spoiler. Mm-hmm. The book will come out in Norwegian next year, and he will come here. Yeah, it yeah it's a out. tremendously important book. I think it's an important book on its own, on its own merits, and it's an important book from what it and other books like it mean to Syrians. Mm. Um, you will be. We have to conclude now, mm-hmm. but you will be in Oslo for for a few days now. Yeah, uh, and before going to Bergen and Lillehammer, actually, mm-hmm. and. Tomorrow you will be back here at House of Literature, uh-huh. or actually you're staying here at House of Literature. Yeah. And you, will, you will be here. Uh, <laughs> I'll for take a, off my pajamas and I'll come down the stairs. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the conference called The Question of Syria, Doomed by Hope, Yeah. Um, together with other speakers yes. as well. Um, uh, so I wanted to end on that. Now. I mean, Doomed by Hope is the name of the title, uh, uh-huh. the title of the conference. Yeah. Uh, uh, can you say something briefly about what there is to hope for? Yeah. Mean, the role of hope in this situation? Yeah. Well, um, well, everyone will have to come back tomorrow and the next day um, where SPACE, the Syrian Peace Action Center, has put together an amazing program and profile of um, with Syria and Palestine and questions of, of hope and struggles for hope. So um, I won't be able to do justice to, to these guys who mm-hmm. put it together. So you'll have to come back for tomorrow. But um, yeah, uh, Hope. Well, I think that the enti- that entire sort of arc that I tried to talk about is a struggle for hope and getting hope. And now I think the struggle for many Syrians is sustaining hope. Um, that the, you can look at the the map and you look at the regime that's reconsolidating power, that's reconquering territory that had it slipped from its control. Um, f- the interviews I was doing with with um, uh, with displaced Syrians just this past summer, you know, up to about a, a month or so ago, I heard continually a kind of a mature hope, and I'll talk about this tomorrow a bit too. Um, I think a sense for many people of, uh, this is going to be a long struggle. It's not that the revolution is over, it's not that the uprising is over, it's not that Assad has won. This is a longer term issue. Yeah, a longer term struggle, and the issue is how to keep hope alive and how to think 
um, on the long term and how to think, well, maybe this is just a stage and a phase and it will rise up again because all the issues that gave rise to this revolution in the first place have not been resolved and maybe it will be sooner or later. There will be something, an, another revolution. A revolution will take different forms people can't even imagine yet. And there's still hope because it's not over. It's not done. Um, this uh, situation of oppression can't stay on forever. And now the question is how and what to do from here. And I think that's what people are, are thinking about um, and hoping for. Hmm. I think that's a no good place to end. Thank you so okay. much, Wendy Perlman. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotheque.